0: Glad that you're here this morning. My name is Brent, teaching pastor here at Eastlake. If this is your first time checking us out, you picked a great day to come check us out. We are on part two of a series we're calling Remembering Rightly. Uh, Inside of your program, you should have a note sheet to follow along with some stuff there. But uh, here's the idea behind the series. It's a series on memory, but not like, do you remember watching Full House? Because of course you do. Uh, It's not like, do you remember your phone number, your address growing up, or anything like that. The idea behind memory is not just simply recalling information. But every once in a while in life, we have a problem with, uh, with memories that uh, affect us because pain and suffering were involved, and not necessarily because of circumstances, because we can write off pain and suffering due to circumstances just as like bad luck, wrong place, wrong time. I'm talking about pain and suffering that comes as a result of actions taken upon us uh, by people that we know, maybe even people that we love, maybe people that we are related to, friends with, um, married to, uh, or who birthed us. And those those types of things can be really, really difficult. And so every week, uh, the goal of Esau, we should we try, we try and gather together to learn what it would take to practice the way of Jesus. And last week, I introduced this concept of this idea that Jesus talked about, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, which can be like um, okay, out of a little bit out of touch with reality for us. It's one of those we're gonna do our best to obey and walk with Jesus as long as it kind of makes sense with reality. And that one then comes in and we're like, you don't know my brother-in-law or you don't know the situation. You don't know how this thing played out. Or you could say, I have prayed for my enemies. I have prayed for uh, explosive diarrhea and untreatable diseases. So therefore I have prayed in some sense or fashion. And we know that that's not really how it works. And so we're trying to figure out how do you how do you as a community gather together to learn and practice the way of Jesus and not simply write off this as kind of irredeemable, uh, this kind of calling to do this as uh, impossible, really out of touch with reality? Maybe that worked 2,000 years ago, but it's 2019. so And you don't know, again, you don't know my brother-in-law. So therefore, um, we're going to just kind of let that linger. So, and then Paul, though, takes this teaching of Jesus. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, pulls it into actually living this out in community. And he writes this letter to the Roman church and he spends the first half of the book talking about who they are and their identity in Christ. And then the second half talking about, what do you do with that? If that's true about you, then how do you live your life beyond this? And in verse 21 of chapter 12, he says, don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Here's his practical implication. Knowing what I know about Jesus, knowing uh, what I know about what kind of environment you church in Rome are currently experiencing, don't be overcome by evil. Don't let the things that have happened to you, don't be uh, disabled by your memories of the pain and suffering that other people have caused you, but begin to learn what it would take to overcome evil with good. And we said in week one, I think what that's gonna take is for us to make a really aggressive push, intentional push to remember Rightly, those things that have happened to us. So, in case you don't remember what I uh, uh, talked about last week, let's uh, see what I did there. Uh, let me do a quick recap of last weekend's talk. the The big takeaway was if it's not a matter of if you remember what has happened to you. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how that you remember that is most important to you. Remembering something by itself, just simply remembering, is actually morally ambiguous, meaning it's not good enough, it's not good enough just to remember, because remembering something and not letting it go and fester on it can, can be a, a part of the healing process. It can, you've seen memories inspire people, but you've also seen them injure them even further. You've seen memories provide solidarity, but you've also seen it divide people and people groups even further. You've seen memories protect yourself and protect other people, but it seems like all of the superhero villains that we watch in the stories or whatever have some sort of a back history being played out over and over again because of past hurt that they just can't get over, right? And I know that that's a trope, but the reason that the trope works is because it makes sense for us in reality. The reason that it's played out over and over again in superhero stories, that the villain has some back thing that got hurt and whatever, and now he's living this out and taking it out on other people, is because we've kind of seen that to a degree, a much smaller degree, right? Less weapons, less all the kind of special effects, but um, definitely taken out with other people. So how you remember is important. I want you and I want myself to learn to go through life remembering rightly. The serious idea behind this whole thing is it isn't enough to simply remember. We must push to remember rightly. Rightly, And I kind of left it at that. I kind of left the rightly a little bit undefined. Like there's a way to do it, but I didn't quite go into exactly how. So then hopefully you left last week and the reason you came back this week is perhaps because you said, yes, remember, yes, but how? Remember, yes, but how? Which leads us to the next step in the conversation. How does one remember rightly. And my my proposal is going to be this. I'm just going to lay out the rest of the series for you uh, in advance. There's basically two parts to this equation and then a big finale, right? So um, this week, what it does not include, that's what we're going to be talking about, how, how do you remember rightly? Here's what it does not include. Next week, here's what it does include. And then finally, how long should we remember something is the big week for uh, finale week. And in case you have to miss uh, next week or you want to re-listen to this talk or if I recap some of week one and you were like, that was kind of interesting, I, need, I have so many more questions, uh, there's a website. You can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks or find us on iTunes and do whatever. Uh, we have a podcast in there. All right. Here's something that we know intuitively as we dive into what we're going to be talking about today. What's not included in something is sometimes as important as what is included in something. Let's say that one more time. Sometimes in your life, something that's not included in something is almost as important as something that is included in something. All right, here's a quick life example. Nobody advertises the inclusion of gluten as a positive perspective on their product. Have you noticed that? It's always the absence of gluten that is the promotional material. Anytime somebody admits to gluten in their product, it's almost as if they're saying, contains gluten, dot, 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 sorry about that, nothing we can do. If you like true wheat bread, wonder bread, it's going to have some gluten in it, sorry about that. As soon as they are aware that it doesn't include gluten, they can't get to tell you about it fast enough, can they? Does not contain gluten. Listen, we know the crackers are just okay. I mean, they kind of taste like recycled cardboard, but guess what? No gluten. Oh, that is a positive in this direction. This is a good move. Or another example, have you ever gone to Costco, done the little samples in Alice, because it's always Alice? Um, because she's 80, and uh, she goes, she has you taste this hamburger, and after you've taken a bite, she'll say something like this, hey, guess what's not in that hamburger, right? And you're like, oh, you tricked me. I just knew it tasted bad. I wasn't sure exactly what it was. <laughs> she goes, no meat in that. There's no meat in that hamburger that you just ate. Guess what's not in that burger? Besides flavor, I have no idea. What is it, Alice? beef. There is no beef. Listen, nobody buys black bean burgers because they can't get enough black beans in their life. Do you know what I mean? It's the absence of something else that brings value to things. It's the absence of something. And when it comes to remembering rightly, the absence of of something, this is my proposal for this week, the absence of something can mean as much, if not more, which is why we're starting here, than the presence of something. Have you ever thought about something and have it in your mind, it transpired one way, but then you're presented with evidence that actually points otherwise? Have you ever thought like for sure at the core of your being, this is how this thing played out, and then every, then, then somebody questioned it, or then you read something that, that, that said something else, and you're like, oh, really? I'm not sure that this is, this is how this whole thing worked. Is this, is this true? Um, a few years ago, uh, well, okay, so, see, so season, there's a, there's a podcast out there called Revisionist History by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. He's written a ton of books. He's a great thinker, writes for the New Yorker, blah, blah, blah. Fantastic podcast. I love it. In season one, episode seven, there was a, uh, an episode called The Blame Game. And in this, he highlights the fact that if you remember a few years ago, there was an incident that came out and it turned into sort of a hysteria and an epidemic of gas pedals sticking on Toyota vehicles. Do you remember that? Um, they would would have this this thing where they got in wrecks and all of a sudden one one came out and this guy or this girl I I don't remember how it started but they go I was driving along and all of a sudden my car just started taking off on itself and I'm freaking out and I'm trying to pump the the, the brakes and it's not working and all of a sudden we got in this wreck and then all of a sudden after this one story came out like three stories came out and they're like hey yeah me too that happened to me too or something I remember something like this taking place and all of a sudden the story started coming out and Toyota had sort of an epidemic on their hands they ended up having to do recall, uh, of over uh, 10 million vehicles and paid a fine of over $1 billion, of which I never saw a penny of that, even though I own a Camry, that doesn't matter, because their gas pedals were sticking or so people remembered. Because in this episode, Malcolm Gladwell talks about how uh, they would go in after the fact take the computers out. They have like sort of a black box, not as much as airplanes, but they have sort of a black box. And what they're realizing is in these moments, it wasn't actually sticking. People were hitting their brake, their brake pedal instead of their gas pedal, but in their mind, they were thinking that they were hitting their, their, their brake. Sorry, flip that around. They were hitting their gas pedal thinking they were hitting their brake one. And all of a sudden, but, but it's hard to convince other people who are utterly convinced. No, 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 no. I know what I hit. I was in the car, you weren't. You're just looking up something on a computer. And Toyota ended up just taking sort of the blame, being like, all right, yeah, maybe it was us, I don't know. Here's a billion dollars, which I, would, I don't know how they got to that spot, but they must be printing money to be able to be like, yeah, it's not really us, but we don't want the drama of bad PR, so we'll write a check off. And these people were not, I really genuinely think, they're not trying to scam Toyota. Maybe, maybe like the latter half were, maybe I was, as I trying to fill that out, and be like, yeah, it totally happens to me all the time. But for the most part, at least the beginning, I genuinely think, the, and, and Malcolm would say the same thing in this podcast. And if you want to listen to it, I put the uh, link to the, at that specific episode in the show notes or in the, uh, in the talks notes, if you do the whole talks thing, the, the, the phone deal, um, that's on the bottom of the notes. All right. Um, but I, again, I genuinely think that they were fully convinced that this was absolutely true. What do we want? We want in that instance. What's the motivation behind it? Well, people obviously don't want to be at fault for an accident that they cause. Um, and so if as soon as there's like this tiny glimmer of hope, we begin to make up and tell these stories. Whether we intentionally do it or not, we convince ourselves of something taking place. When asked, a personal example for you real quick. Um, When asked about what happened in my car accident back in uh, 2010, I was involved in, a uh, not 2010, it was 2016, good grief, Brent. Um, We started this church in 2010, those are the dates. Anyways, I'm I'm mixing that up. 2016, December 10th, I I got a big bad car accident, it was horrible. I ran my my car in the back of a semi at 50 miles an hour on cruise control, which you shouldn't do that, you know what I mean? But like, then what happens is I was being asked, do you remember what happened? And my wife recalls me telling nurses, and police officers, both of whom I do not remember talking to, various different stories. The stories would change every time I would tell them and she's over there going, Brent, you're talking to a police officer. You can't be going to be like, and then there was this donkey that came out on the road and I was like swerving, you know, like all this kind of crazy stuff. And she's like, it was f- so funny to hear you tell these stories and you tell it so convincingly and you're, you're in the hospital, you already got a ticket. There's no reason to like lie to make up some story, right? This is already embarrassing, painful, expensive, all of the things, those have all been settled. It's not like some story that you can tell makes the police officer go, we'll take that ticket back. Well, you know, that's fine, right? That wasn't your fault. That donkey shouldn't have been there. You know what I mean? There's no reason that that should happen. And yet I found myself telling these stories. And even to this day, if you came up and asked me, so what happened that day? Like I have a version of the story, but like I know my brain enough to be like, I don't know that that's what actually happened. Like I'll tell you what I think happened, not, not right now, but I, I would be able to kind of give you an insight into it, but I'm, I don't know if it's self-awareness. I don't know if it's just I've, I've seen the effects of, of memory and the, the uh, distorting effects of memory taking place, where I would say it less than confidently. Here's my take on it, but who knows what actually happened? place. I don't really know what happened. I can tell you what I think happened, but I don't trust my own memory. I'm skeptical of even myself. It still feels very true to me, by the way. It still feels very true that I was blinded by a light, that all I was, like, I'm coming around a bend, and I'm just trying to hug the line and and know that I can uh, stay stay close to this thing. But, yeah, I'm swatting flies. Sorry, guys. Um, But I, I don't really know. I hold it very, very loosely. A part of the storyline of one of my wife and I's favorite shows played out this in a recent episode. Actually, this is kind of what sparked this entire series, is watching this and being like, that's so true for people. Um, it's a story, uh, it's a show called Barry, it's on HBO, and I'm going to show a clip of it. But here's what I want to do. It, it, it's a depiction, it's a reenactment in an in a, in a acting class of a domestic dispute that was going on with this woman and her boyfriend at the time and then how it plays out. So I know that this can be a trigger for some people. And so I'm, I'm trying to issue a warning early on. Like if you're triggered by that kind of stuff, uh, then uh, here, I'm going to just turn this this way a little bit and you can just focus on me. That, I didn't, that's not very helpful. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> Hang on. That didn't work. And I don't know where the freaking off button is for this thing. Was that it? Got it. Okay. So you can either watch up there and be entertained, or you can just watch me and be also entertained. All right. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, here's the backstory on Barry. Barry is an assassin for hire who is hired one day to kill somebody who takes acting classes in Hollywood. He falls in love with a girl named Sally. That's the girl in the video. Um, She is also an actress. Uh, They are acting to become acting partners, and they are assigned to recreate a biographical experience with personal tragedy. So he does one, and then she does one. She wants to recreate the time where her boyfriend at the time was physically abusive, and she kicked him out of the house, except that after writing and performing the scene publicly, she'd already written this out, they'd performed it once, uh, a few times in front of her peers, her close friends remember the story going down a bit differently. She begins to call them up and say, hey, you want to come see me? I'm, I'm going to recreate this time in life where Kevin, or I don't remember his name, uh, uh, abused me. And then remember when I like yelled at him and said, get out of my house? And her friends were like, uh, I don't remember that, right? I don't remember it going down like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he like, he, remember he like choked me and then I was like, you can't do that to me and get out of my house. And like, I I remember you said he was pushing you around and then like you stayed together for like six more months and then he moved out because he just wanted to move out like on his own accord. And she's going through this drama of, have I over remembered some things? Did he actually choke me or was it just pushing? Was it pushing or was he just yelling? Was there even yelling? Was there an argument? Was there anything? Or was I just annoyed at living with somebody and he's leaving socks all over the floor? What's happening here? Did I kick him out? Did I stand up for myself Or did I just like cave in? Did I just go along with it? Am I recreating something to make myself feel better about what I should have done, but I didn't do it? She didn't start out by intending to tell a false description of how it all went down, but she's wrestling with this idea of what if I've deceived myself? And this plays out over several different episodes. Um, But it was intriguing because at the core, she's wrestling with this big idea. What if that's how, looking back, I wanted it to go down, this is how I should have responded, absolutely. But I believe at the core of my being, this is how it went down. Like, this is my truth. This is what's true to me. And yet perhaps there were some insertions into the story that weren't altogether true. Perhaps he was a jerk. Perhaps he did do something physically against her. Perhaps she did say something like, hey, maybe we should break this thing off. Perhaps she said you should leave. But all the, in the moment, she's realizing my memory is a bit faulty because I think I might be telling myself a story that I want to hear about myself. And I know... I'm not trying to downplay, obviously, physical abuse or assault or anything like that, okay? That's definitely not the the point of this. Because I know there's somebody, a defense could be, a reaction could be, this is what you'd expect from a defense attorney representing a clearly guilty assaulter, right? And if this was a court case, this is what the defense attorney would say. Hey, can we really trust our own memories? I'm I'm, Honestly, I'm not, this is a fictional story, didn't actually happen, blah, 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 okay? But that type of thing can play out in dealing with and wrestling with the hurt that we have. And perhaps... When we go down this road, maybe that's what makes it so impossible to hear Jesus say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you because we've created out of our own memories an enemy that cannot receive forgiveness or does not deserve to receive forgiveness. Now, perhaps it genuinely happened. We're gonna get there. We're gonna talk about that kind of stuff, but we cannot overestimate the ability of our heart, our self, our psyche, our mind, our memory to kind of create a version of the story that we want for ourselves and what kind of an injustice, even though perhaps an injustice was done to me, when I remember incorrectly what they have done to me, I am also issuing them an injustice in this way. Now, maybe it's not on a scale of kind of uh, atrociousness, not not equal in part, but when we do it, that's not really overcoming. That, That feels like Paul, when he says, don't be overcome by evil. I'm overcome by evil to the point I've got to recreate a monster in my mind versus overcoming evil with good. There's a story in the Old Testament about a, a prophet named Jeremiah. Uh, prophets in the Old Testament were often um, uh, chosen by God to be a mouthpiece to the nation of Israel, this chosen nation of Israel, as they are integrating themselves into the New Promised Land uh, making themselves into a nation that is trying to be, um, in the eyes of the, uh, you know, the surrounding nations, respectful, and, and we are our own thing, we are our own people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, unfortunately, many of the prophets who were assigned to go and be a voice piece for the mouth of God in, in them were often ones that delivered bad news. Do you ever have a friend who only delivers you bad news? Um, sometimes you stop taking their phone calls, or you don't return their phone calls as fast. Like You love them. I love you. You're just a pessimist. Like every time I talk to you, you're like, you're honest with me about some stuff. Like you're you're the one telling me, I don't know, I'm not sure that how that's went down. You're not like, well, yeah, whatever, positive, always positive, for you, I'm for you, I'm for you. Uh, They're just like, there's like a level of honesty there that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. That's exactly what the nation of Israel is going through with prophets and specifically Jeremiah, one of the worst offenders or one of the most honest and truthful ones or whatever, going to them saying, you've been chosen by God. He's given you specific ways of doing life and you keep repeatedly going against these. Like, you're not supposed to intermarry, you find excuses for why intermarriage in this way makes sense, because there's treaties with other nations, uh, you're not supposed to have any sort of other temples, and you're like, well, we kind of took this place over, it's a really beautiful, we don't really want to tear it down, it's worth a lot of money if we just destroy it, like, that feels like bad stewardship, so why don't we just keep these Asher poles or these different things in place, we'll be fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, and God's up there going, That's, it's not fine, it's not fine, Jeremiah, go, say this message. Say this message. Eventually the people of Israel the leadership of Israel get so they're about to be invaded they're so and they've got this guy squawking in the back like it's going to happen we're going to get invaded we're all going to die right and everybody's like shut up Jeremiah and he's like refusing to shut up so here's what they do they lock him in a cistern which is basically like this well this underground well thing and he's in there until these other nations come in destroy everything they get their way right and they unlock this thing and they find this guy coming out going I was telling him you were gonna do this the whole time to which the other nations were like, oh, you're on our side then. Come be a part of us, right? It's a crazy story. And that's when he begins to write all these things down about how I tried to tell him, I try, I'm trying to be honest with you. God, you put me, the, the thing about Jeremiah, they, they call him the weeping prophet because he's in this tough position. He keeps complaining, God, why did you put me in this position? How about one bit of good news? Because it seems like every time I talk to these people, it's like, you're going to die. You're going to get invaded. Like, give me something to go off of. I want to make friends, but I want to be honest with you. Or I want to be honest with what you've entrusted to me. He's in a tough spot. And he watches these people delude themselves into thinking, no, this is what God wants. No, this, this is okay. This is just good stewardship. This is, this, is, this is fine. This is fine. This is fine. He's watched them go through long bouts of self-delusion, falling prey to their own thoughts, Misremembering what God had said was most important, misremembering what God had done for them as a nation, rescuing them out of Egypt, integrating them into this new land, all of these different things. And he pens this word or this sentence or this thought or this observation of life that resonates throughout the ages, that makes so much incredible sense even for us today. Listen to what he says. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it. It's a little bit philosophical. It's a little bit out there. And this is, he's almost writing this for himself as he's trying to make sense of telling people what they needed to hear, them saying, we're fine, we don't need to hear it. We're gonna do our own thing, delude themselves in that way. And then him going, here's why, Here's how I can piece all of the pieces together. Here's why, here's why nations can be surrounding us. There can be kind of like a point of no return and we still don't trust God and go with his realms. We still think we can dig ourselves out of this pit. Why would these people with absolutely no hope keep clinging to this idea that they've got it all covered? Because the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? the heart is so incredibly deceitful. This is the reason that you've watched people Kind of destroy their own lives, whether it's through financial ruin or throwing their marriage away, or um, uh, all kinds of just poor life decisions. And and, and you've tried to reason with them, and you tried to logic with them, but you can't live your life, their life for them. Maybe it's a loved one, maybe it's a child, and you've watched them. And you're like, I didn't raise you this way. What are you doing? They've, and 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 the only thing that resonates with you is to hear, because you know it's not like this, like maybe they were brought up in this this poor family. Like, no, it's not a poor family. It's my family. I did a good job, right? Uh, it's not that. It's something different. It's something I can't put my finger on and I can try and bail them out and I can try and give them money sometimes. I can try and put them in the right environment. But every single time, it feels like they keep going back to this stupid way of life. And the only thing that makes sense to me is that this phrase right here, the heart is deceitful, above all things, who can trust it? So how does this play into remembering rightly? When we are recollecting in our minds the ways that people, especially those who are closest to us, have hurt us, there is a story that our memories begin to tell us. Now, some of them may be true. Some of the details and the facts may be true. They may even admit to it. Or even if they don't admit to it, there are enough people in your life to be like, no, that's how it played out. There really was something going on there. But then there's a lot, I'm just telling you, there's a lot of these different gray areas where we're we're like, I'm pretty sure of this. This feels very, very true to me. And my only caution to you in this moment is simply going, but here's what I know about myself. My heart is deceitful above all else, I would be very wise to question it. I would be very wise to take it with a grain of salt. I'd be very wise not to then jump back into some relationship where something's going on that's that's definitely, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is sometimes we can't even begin to trust our own self in that way. And biblically speaking, this is not an American problem. This is not a 21st century problem. This is not because you got a cell phone now. Your your face is always in the screen, so therefore you can't really trust yourself because who really knows? We're being programmed by Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg's the evil one. And so therefore we don't really know what we know. No, no, no. This has been happening for thousands of years. Welcome to being human heart is deceitful above all else. And if this is true, and by the way, you're free to be like, you know, the Bible's great, inspiring stories, love the Jesus stuff. That feels Old Testament to me. I'm like, I always take that with caution. I'm not sure. I'm not really religious. I'm not really Christian. I don't believe in God yet. I'm just exploring. That's fine. I, I get that. Free pass, whatever. You can believe what you want to believe. But I'm telling, if you're if you are a Christian and, and this is, and if this rings true for us, then there's a couple of implications that play out. And this is if you're taking notes, this is, these would be times to kind of write some things down for you. A memory, number one, a memory only approximates the remembered event. A memory always only approximates the event. And we know this because you've gone to a movie before with your wife or a significant other or whatever, and you walk down and be like, that was so amazing. And like a couple of days later, you talk about it, and you're like, remember that part in the movie where you're like, and, and you're like, that didn't, no, no, no. Her name was. No, 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 the boyfriend broke up with her first. No, there's, there's like elements of the story and it's super small and it's inconsequential. It's further proof that our mind, our brain can only process so much at a certain time. Our brain functionally approximates events. That's how our brains work. Keeping that in mind then, number two, remembering typically involves a mixture of truthful description and imagined construction. Number three, and I hope you're writing these fast, be aware that our accounts are typically both more simple and more interesting than the truth. And this is where it gets a little bit like, because <laughs> here's what we do when we create things and we're doing this listening to our deceitful heart. Here's what we do. Things become a lot more black and white. They become far more simple and they become far more interesting Because we're involved and we like to think of ourselves as interesting. We want to come across as somebody who's interesting. When we recreate in our minds, it's far more simple and it's far more interesting. Number four, in the first telling of something, the first recreation of recalling something from memory, we may be fully aware of this distinction between fiction and nonfiction. But before long, the story we want to tell stands alone. When we first tell something, we kind of know that we fabricated a little bit to kind of make it more interesting, a little bit more black and white, a little bit more simple. But eventually over time, if we kind of keep playing this game, fiction stands alone. We're not even aware of our own falsehood. We started out knowing "Eh, it's not quite right, but I'm trying to like, I know he's a jerk. I know he's a jerk. So I'm going to tell this story. And he didn't quite do this, but he's still a jerk nonetheless. And so even when I say this, nobody questions it because they know he's a jerk too. So I'm good. Miroslav Volf calls this filtering out the poison from the medicine of memory. We must be aware of these four takeaways, these four significant things, because in our process, if we are called to remember rightly, if we are gonna take up the challenge of loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, overcoming evil with good, it is gonna require an awareness that our heart is involved and our heart is deceitful above all else, and we should be very careful to trust it and we have this known tendency, this basically scientific way of our brain operating in this way, I've gotta be incredibly careful. I must do my part to filter out the poison from the medicine of memory. A key aspect of remembering rightly is remembering truthfully. Refusing to speak falsely about the past. I must refuse to speak falsely of the past. Why? Because sometimes the absence of something is as important, or I think probably in this case, more important than the presence of something. The absence of fabricating a past that makes me look good, that makes her look worse, and it makes sense, and it feels very true to me, is an incredibly dangerous path because it's only when the truth of something genuinely comes out that I think we are able to access the ability to be able to forgive and love those who have hurt us and to pray genuinely for those who have caused us pain and caused us suffering. Sometimes the absence of something, a story that, we have knowingly or perhaps unknowingly, if we're taking Jeremiah seriously, perhaps even unknowingly, created to make ourselves look better, feel better, to make it far more simple or far more interesting for us. Now, I say all that, I wanna close. It feels very kind of depressing, like I don't even know what I believe about myself anymore. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Uh, Brent, I can't ever come to you and be like, "So this thing happened," because you're gonna be like, "But did it? I don't even know." Oh um, I'm not denying the reality that people have done some things to hurt you. Okay, I'm, I'm really not. My hope, my my goal for you, I can't. I don't have a time machine. I can't go back and fix it. Um, my goal for you and me is to. Listen to Paul, take Paul at his word, take Jesus at his word, and figure out a better way of moving forward that you can't change the past, but you don't have to let it keep injuring you over and over and over again. And perhaps one of the things, perhaps an easy first step is to speak truthfully and remember truthfully and remember rightly and not speaking falsely of what has happened to me, knowingly or unknowingly. And this doesn't leave us without hope. As Christians, we hold fast to the hope that suffering will not have the final word, One day, someday, God will expose the truth about wrongs, condemn each evil deed. Because this is important, because here's why you go, but what if it did? Maybe it didn't. Like maybe your question, maybe, maybe all this stuff that you've said is like interesting and like, okay, so now I'm like, maybe it didn't happen, but like if it did, and then I'm, I've convinced myself, whatever, then that goes unpunished. And then he gets away with it or she gets away with it or something happens or my dad can live and be like, oh, I was a pretty good dad. And no, you weren't. You're a horrible dad. Doesn't matter. And we, we struggle with this and we go, but what about, but what about if it did well, the good news about it is the Christian pathway also holds on to this hope that one day, someday, God exposes the truth about all wrongs, condemns each evil deed, and redeems both the repentant perpetrators and their victims, thus reconciling them to God and to each other. We hold on to this hope that one day all wrongs will be righted. C.S. Lewis wrote something about how everything that uh, has gone wrong becomes go, comes undone. Um, how it no longer has the effects and the, the pain and the struggle and the suffering that is involved in this. Now, that is a future hope that we hope to someday. So what do we do in the meantime? We are wary of our heart. We take Jeremiah at his word. We push to remember rightly, and we refuse to speak falsely about what has happened to us. We are very aware about what remembering rightly does not include. Now, what does it include? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Let's pray. Father, our prayer today, as we wrestle through some of this stuff, as we perhaps are going through uh, in the middle of, of, uh, of pain, or even just talking about this kind of triggers, like something that happened to us that we've kind of held on to, and we've gone to counseling, we've done things, we've talked to friends, and we've We've even probably attempted to resolve the situation, or or the relationship like is fine. Like now, my dad takes my phone calls, but there's still like something, like underneath the surface. It's almost like the river's frozen over, and there's like the ice is on top, and there's something still flowing underneath. There's something still moving there. It's just not you. Just can't see it all the time. There's still some pain that we're still working through in this as we process what it would mean to remember. Rightly, let us go forward reminding ourselves, keeping in the front of our minds that the heart, our heart is deceitful amongst many things. Who can trust it? Who can trust it? Help us not to speak falsely about what has happened. Help us to fight for that. Help us to be aware of this. and In the middle of doing so, cling to the hope that one day, you day. You promise that one day this will all be resolved. And that which has caused us pain and suffering will be reconciled. Give us that hope. Let us, give us the, uh, the, the, the hope and let us, let us cling to this truth for ourselves because the wisdom to know where to begin to apply this in our life, the courage to act on in your name. Amen.